Thank you. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back Dr. Kevin Monaghan um, and his leading work um, within the Family Cancer Unit. And he's here to discuss a very important issue of a new polyp, um, post-polypectomy and post-colorectal cancer resection surveillance guidelines. Very important for every gastroenterologist and surgeon to know about. Thank you, Kevin. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so I'd like to introduce uh, this by saying this was work that was led by Matt Rutter, but um, some of us, including myself, Brian and Shun, were, were on the guideline development group. Um, and in parallel, we've also developed a hereditary colorectal cancer guideline. Both of these are available on the uh, BSG website under, if you Google BSG guidelines, um, and they're in th going through proofing in GUT. So uh, these are the final versions of the guidelines, although they're not yet published on, in GUT. Um, they're available at the BSG website. Um, and uh, these, are, these are both an update from the 2010 Carrion's guidelines, uh, management of high-risk patients. But these, these guidelines specifically relate to um, that I'm presenting post-polypectomy and post-colorectal cancer resection. And we're developed as a joint venture between the BSG, the ACP, and Public Health England. So we'll be applicable in the bowel cancer screening program in due course. Um, so uh, at, at the outset, as we're thinking about what, the, what we needed to try and achieve. Well, one of the things we wanted to do was to look afresh at all the evidence that was available and try and use as much big data uh, that was available, both through our um, the bowel cancer <coughs> screening program and, and published data um, over, over the last few decades, um, rather than think about amending the existing um, algorithm. Um, and we determined that the primary aim of surveillance is to, is to reduce the incidence of colorectal cancer um, and that we should be offering surveillance to people who are at higher risk of colorectal cancer compared to the general population. So we were looking at absolute risks rather than relative risks because if you're a 35-year-old and your, your relative risk compared to another 35-year-old is increased five times but compared to a, an average 65-year-old who is not at higher risk, um, then why should you be offered an intervention that isn't being offered to a 65-year-old? So we wanted to know what's that individual's absolute lifetime risk of colorectal cancer uh, and, and what's the benefit of colonoscopy in mitigating that risk? Um, and in order to understand that, we have to take into account um, patient factors such as their age, um, uh, polyp factors, um, for example, the polyp multiplicity or the presence of high-grade dysplasia, and colonoscopy-related factors, including colonoscopists, key performance indicators, uh, the quality of bowel prep. And the assumption is made with these guidelines that in order to proceed along the algorithm that the initial colonoscopy is of an acceptable minimal qual minimum quality. So if someone has a colonoscopy with poor bowel prep, then you've got to reset with another colonoscopy with good bowel prep before you can initiate a, a, the patient along that pathway. Um, so which patient should commence surveillance? post-polypectomy and post-colorectal cancer resection? Obviously, this is a key question within this guideline. Um, we also asked, what is the appropriate surveillance interval? Um, some patients may not, of course, need a, a further surveillance procedure after having a single one. Um, but um, we wanted to know, what, what, what was the evidence? Was there any RCT data out there? Um, and when can surveillance be stopped? Should it be stopped at 75 for everyone, for example? And I'm sure you've seen this algorithm and are implementing it in many of your units. As I said, it's available on the BSG website. Um, and uh, although it's, uh, this is relatively dense, um, there are three key arms here. So you have, um, well, uh, you have colorectal cancer, um, where patients have a colonoscopy, uh, which is essentially a clearance colonoscopy a year after diagnosis, because 
We, we know that a lot of the uh, um, metachronous cancers and advanced adenomas that occur after a diagnosis of colorectal cancer are actually present at the time of the cancer and, and uh, haven't been dealt with. Um, so they have a clearance colonoscopy in a year and then they enter in, uh, into the surveillance, the true surveillance arm, which is a, uh, a surveillance colonoscopy three years after their index procedure. Um, and uh, if this is normal, then they don't require any further surveillance, and I'll explain why. Um, uh, if they have polyps, then they enter post-polypectomy surveillance. If you have a two centimeter plus non-pedunculated lesion, then uh, if it's removed on block, you can have a follow-up surveillance colonoscopy three years later. If it's removed piecemeal, then you need to have site checks. Um, and uh, high-risk findings relates to whether you have high-risk polyp. So if you have one or two small tubular adenomas, it's really neither, neither here nor there. Um, and these patients previously would have been offered either no surveillance or a five-year follow-up. And I'll go into the high-risk findings in more detail. These are the key recommendations. So post-polypectomy, patients should have a surveillance at three years if they meet um, uh, criteria. Um, and the criteria now includes both adenomas and serrated lesions. Um, and the criteria are you either have five non-advanced uh, lesions or you have two, but one is an advanced adenoma or advanced neoplasia. Um, and uh, that would include a, a lesion over 10 millimetres in size, a serrated lesion with uh, dysplasia or a, uh, an adenoma high-grade dysplasia. But not histology because the evidence isn't very strong, uh, uh, to, wasn't really uh, robust. Um, and post-colorectal cancer resection, as I said, they have a clearance colonoscopy a year after colonoscopy and then a surveillance procedure three years after their diagnosis sorry, of colorectal cancer. And uh, if that's normal, they may be discharged and followed up in the bowel cancer screening program if they're within the age for that, or they may be followed up as per post-polypectomy guidelines. So this is a significant change compared to the previous iteration of guidelines, which re recommended a five-yearly colonoscopy. So here's a patient, this is a slightly artificial scenario, although this is a real patient uh, at the beginning at least. This is a 45-year-old gentleman who presented with a prolapsing rectal neoplasm. Uh, you can see here, I haven't got the pointer, but uh, just above on the top right, uh, you can see the, the, the endoscope or the colonoscope being retroflexed um, through the anal canal. Uh, superficial biopsies were uh, demonstrated at tubular villus adenoma high grade dysplasia, and the endoscopist thought it was too close to the anal canal to be endoscopically resectable. So if you use your VVOX, you can pl please enter the answer uh, A, EMR, B, ESD, C, TAMIS, D, TME, E, if you hate algorithms, acronyms, <laughs> or algorithms. Um, so A, B, or C, or D, or E if you're fed up already. Okay. <laughs> so I think any of these answers are reasonable, but uh, we performed staging MRI. There was no uh, there was no association of, uh, there's no lymphovascular invasion or lymph nodes. Or, um, so we, um, we uh, opted for a, uh, just try to lift it and snare it off. And it came off very nicely with a simple on-block EMR. Um, but I think it's reasonable, any of these approaches are potentially reasonable. Um, this was actually a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma, mismatch repair proficient, seven millimeters of clear margin, and Haggett one. So a good outcome for that patient. Kevin, can I just, I, mean, I think the key take home for that is that that lesion needed an on-block excision. That was the important bit, whether it was EMR or ESD or TAMIS. Exactly, yeah. You don't want it in pieces, something like yes, that. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Now we've got a, a carcinoma, 
uh, we enter the, the cancer follow-up arm of the algorithm. And uh, there was a, just, just after we developed this, this guideline, this uh, meta-analysis was published in Gastroenterology, although we didn't use this directly, we came up with the same um, conclusion, which was that almost all uh, metachronous colorectal cancer, whether it's anastomotic or non-anastomotic, occurs within the first three years of follow-up. Uh, and as such, um, colonoscopy is of benefit in the first three years and of limited benefit thereafter. And if you, have, if you perform an on-block resection, your risk of your survival is as good as a surgical resection with clear margin and no adverse histological features. So next steps, they've had a, their colonoscopy a year after diagnosis. They've had one three years after diagnosis. They're both normal. What do we do next? Uh, we either do another colonoscopy in three years, uh, five years later, or we discharge the patient. So if you'd like to answer A, B, or C, please. Three-year colonoscopy, five-year colonoscopy, discharge. Okay. So, um, well, they've had the three-year colonoscopy. The, they, they would normally be discharged with two normal colonoscopies, but because they have a diagnosis of early-onset colorectal cancer, and this is where there's some crossover with the hereditary colorectal cancer guideline, where we've developed gu guidance for people with early-onset colorectal cancer for the first time. Um, <coughs> It's defined as someone diagnosed with colorectal cancer under the age of 50. We're offering panel testing, recommended in the guideline under 30, but actually at St. Mark's now we're offering it to anyone diagnosed under the age of 40, a 15-gene panel test um, for early onset colorectal cancer, and maybe under 50 if they have other features such as a family history. And surveillance in these patients should be continued every five years until they reach the age for national screening. Once you've excluded Lynch syndrome in these individuals, actually the risk of metachronous cancer is not very high. We're doing this really because of uh, uh, two reasons. One, acceptability to patients who would not like to be discharged perhaps if they have a diagnosis at 35 years of age after only three years. And secondly, because the evidence is, uh, is uh, not very strong uh, either way. But they should continue with the five yearly procedure. So they have a colonoscopy again the, uh, at age 54, which is the five year follow up. And they have this uh, 15 millimetre uh, serrated lesion yeah, here um, and a 2 millimetre adenoma. So what do we do next? Well, we'll go back to the algorithm. Because they have had uh, they have these high-risk findings, they've got uh, one lesion, uh, serrated lesion over a centimetre in size, plus a second lesion. They have a further surveillance colonoscopy at three years. If we think about what we're doing here in terms of uh, offering that to people with high-risk findings only, there's, a, there's actually quite a lot of data now that suggests that if you have a, a low-risk adenoma, um, that um, your long-term risk of colorectal cancer is actually quite low. Um, and this is uh, one of a number of studies. Uh, this was published in JAMA in 2018 from, the, from a screening trial called PLCO. Um, and uh, they looked at the colorectal cancer risk in people with advanced adenomas um, at index procedure, and those with non-advanced adenomas had a similar colorectal cancer long-term risk compared to those who had no adenomas whatsoever. Um, there's a big uh, pub, uh, paper that's been published in Gastroenterology in the last few weeks of 122,000 patients being followed up in the, in the uh, nurses' study in, in the US, which has produced similar results for adenomas and serrated lesions. And if you think about the previous algorithm, these, so you have low-risk patients with non-advanced adenomas. There was also an intermediate risk arm. Um, and uh, Wendy Akin and Amanda Cross have published this paper in Lancet in 2017, where they looked specifically at this intermediate risk group. And they identified within this group two subgroups, one which was a higher risk of colorectal cancer and one 
where the risk was equivalent to a population who never had any adenomas. They, had, uh, they looked at patients who were being surveyed in the UK at, with the bowel cancer screening programme, over 250,000 patients, with, uh, of whom about 12,000 had intermediate risk adenomas. Uh, and their, um, the risk in the, in the kind of lower risk arm of the intermediate group um, of uh, colorectal cancer was, uh, was actually halved compared to um, general population risk. And then the other bit of big data that we've used is from the English bowel cancer screening programme. Uh, this is not yet published, but will be published. Um, Matt Rutter had access to this, and this is uh, this piece of data. We demonstrate that uh, adenoma multiplicity is associated with the significant risk of colorectal cancer. And this is 20, over 28,000 cancers identified um, in bowel cancer screening surveillance. We've got lots of big data. On the basis of the data that's available uh, on the long-term colorectal cancer risk in this population, that there are a number of people who are not, are not likely to benefit from ongoing surveillance because their risk of colorectal cancer is not higher than the rest of the population. And the, you know, there's the adage about if somebody tends for a surveillance colonoscopy and bowel cancer screening, you're probably better off scoping the person that's brought them along uh, rather than that patient because they're more likely to benefit. Um, and I think that certainly there's a certain element of truth to that. Um, so this patient had a normal colonoscopy age 57 and they're discharged because of international screening. One other thing, I've got to put this in because I sweated blood and tears over this for about two and a half years. It's also available on the BSG guideline website. It's the, the new hereditary risk, colorectal cancer risk guidelines. Um, and this patient has a diagnosis of colorectal cancer under 50. Lynch syndrome has been excluded. There's no evidence of polyposis. So we've got to cancel uh, surveillance be offered in their first degree relatives at age 55. I'll, I'll leave it there. I could carry on, but I won't. Thank you. Um, Kevin, um, before we ask the questions, I've got one question. So we've actually been looking at this in our department, as you're aware, um, to try and implement this for retrospective um, surveillance patients and prospectively. One thing I wanted to ask advice on is um, it's dependent on the um, clean, cleanliness of the colon for when you decide to do one again. So if the patient, you've got sort of suboptimal views or they're not that clean, you've used a foot pump and you think you've got reasonable views, when should you repeat the colonoscopy? Um, oh, I think there's a certain amount of subjectivity in this. and I think we obviously have to use a certain amount of clinical judgment. I think if you feel that you've got reasonable views with a foot pump, then that's probably a reasonable colonoscopy, provided that obviously you've reached a sickle pole. Um, but I think if you, if, you, you know, if you can see the left side well, the transverse well, but you know, the, 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 the proximal colon ascending cecum is not visible, then they need a repeat colonoscopy. And what's your time frame? Because even in our own department, we've seen a variability for bringing them back from, for a year or three years or three months. So what would you suggest and recommend to the audience? I think that they shouldn't be brought back in a year or two years. They need to be rebooked as a routine or urgent procedure, depending on the clinical indication. Okay, thank you. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask Kevin? There's one at the front. Uh, thank you, Kevin. A question about the data on the risk of the, in the old intermediate group. You're showing those graphs that their risk is no more than the background risk of the population. Um, can you clarify is that? How do we know that's not just because they're undergoing surveillance and removal of small adenomas that their risk is reduced, or is it just there? Yeah. How do we, how do we clarify that? Separate yeah, that. That's a, that's a fair point. I mean, um, so first of all, there, there's more data that's not been published that's been produced by that group, which uh, reinforces the message from that original study, um, and. Um, 
I guess that would say, you know, you have to understand what the likelihood of mitigation of risk is through colonoscopy. Um, and I think that's, that's a good question. I don't know, Brian. I mean, you know, the, the, one the, thing that Amanda is going to speak later on, and I'm sure she will. Uh, I think for the audience, the thing you've got to remember is that these are guidelines, yeah. and the individual doesn't necessarily fit the guidelines. So at the end of the day, you do what you think is the most appropriate for the individual. Um, a lot. Well, question I was going to ask is: a, a lot of this um, revolves around access to genetic testing, particularly in the patients who uh, are younger, may have had a cancer. We feel uncomfortable about discharging people from surveillance if there's a risk they might have Lynch syndrome or you know, a genetic predisposition. Nationally, how available is, is genetic testing? And, and when genetic testing is negative, how does that leave the patient, even though they may have a family history or they've got a young presentation? Well, certainly, um, I think probably most people don't realise it, but in every single DGH up and down the country, there's a clinical genetics service available. Running, running clinics that people generally don't know about because the regional clinical genetic services are commissioned to provide clinical services in all DGHs and tertiary centres up and down the country. So if you refer to your local cl clinical genetic centre and ask for your patient to be seen in your local hospital, most likely they will. Secondly, uh, we're hopefully now all performing universal testing for uh, Lynch syndrome and all new colorectal cancer diagnoses, mostly with immunohistochemistry, uh, and once you've ruled out Lynch syndrome, uh, you, you, uh, you can really can reassure people that their risk of metachronous cancer or advanced adenomas is significantly less. Got last question from Neil. It was more a comment. Can I just answer that point? Uh, sorry, I'm Neil Shepherd. I'm a pathologist. Uh, about the availability of Lynch testing, in, in, there's a recommendation from uh, NICE that everybody, every colorectal cancer gets tested for Lynch. The trouble is, is local trusts just don't fund this, so uh, particularly in Gloucestershire, where I work, we don't do this, and yet there's an absolute nice recommendation. That wasn't what I, the point I was going to make. The point I was going to make concerns pathology, uh, in that it, it is extraordinary to say that according to the, the uh, Atkin and Saunders guidelines from 2002 and the Cairns guidelines from 2010, you'd have thought pathology should be a really big driver for this, the question of surveillance, the pathology of adenomas. And it's ironic to say that the only role of the pathologist, according to those guidelines, was to actually demonstrate that the polyp was an adenoma, and that was the only. And all the other stuff you see in our reports was of little value, and you made the point, Kevin, that it's because um, uh, pathologists can't agree with each other. And I'm delighted to say in the current Rutter guidelines, actually high-grade dysplasia is up there because pathologists in the UK, at least, can now agree with each other on high-grade dysplasia, and before they couldn't. Whether uh, villousness is ever going to come in as a parameter, I don't know, but it, it's just rather ironic that uh, uh, the pathology hasn't had much of a role, but has an increasing role, according to the Rutter guidelines. There's, there's more, I mean, so polyp should be, the polyp size should be determined by the pathologist, not by the endoscopist, in determining follow-up. Sometimes endoscopists overestimate the size of polyps. Uh, and you know, a complete, completeness of excision needs to be determined as well. So pathology is increasingly important, as, as is molecular data in, in determining follow-up. But I think it's a, it's a great advance having the new guidelines to rationalise our surveillance. Kevin, thanks very much. Thank we you. need to move on.